really just a sneaking suspicion that surely it would be revolutionary if we could do this. And somebody ought to try. It might as well be us. That's the voice of Brian Finro, co-founder and CEO of Lumen Biosciences, headquartered in Seattle. Listen in now to hear Brian's thoughts about leadership and how Lumen Biosciences is working to unlock the full potential of biologic drugs through scalable technology. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Brian Finro, founder and CEO of Lumen Bioscience, headquartered in Seattle. Welcome to BioBoss, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here, John. Brian, what led to your role as founder and CEO of Lumen Bioscience? I started my career practicing law. I came out of uh, Harvard Law School and moved back home here to Seattle. And so I actually practiced law for 10 years as a corporate lawyer representing biotech companies. That was really my entree into the industry. And one of my clients very early on was a agricultural biotech company. And the scientific founder of that company was Jim Roberts, who's my co-founder here at Lumen Bio. And so as life has a way of doing this over and over again to us, I got to know him, oh, it was almost 20 years ago. Uh, and then we went our separate ways for most of a decade. And then serendipitously, we ended up working at two companies that were across the street from each other. At this point, I had left the law firm. Uh, I was working for a company called Adaptive Biotechnologies. And he was across the street. And so I'd see him at this uh, Thai restaurant. And he told me about the technology and what he was working on and the challenges they were having. And we together hatched this plan to start the company that ultimately became Lumen Bioscience. At, at some point, did you and Jim say, this is weird that it's all coming together like this, but it's, it seems like a really interesting thing. Or was it very clear after you had done this research, like, hmm, there's an opportunity here? Well, to his credit, the same pitch that Jim gave me that got me excited about this is, is it, we're more or less true to that today now, five years later. And the story was this concept of really answering the question, what would we do differently if antibody drugs and other biologic drugs were as cheap as small molecule drugs to make and deliver and as easy to ship around and as easy to administer as a pill? Now, the details, <laughs> that's, a, that's another matter because there's a lot of twists and turns in the details of it, but we are still really, honestly, I'm not making this up, still just executing that a very original business plan from five years ago that Jim lured me in the door with. Did you and Jim ever early on say, you know, it's going to be, this is an interesting idea, but it sure is a lot of work to create a company from scratch. Did either of you think, maybe we'll approach some biopharma companies to see if they're interested in taking this idea in-house? <laughs> no, that, that idea never came up. You know, in order to start a company, I mean, you've got to, there's got to be a lot of things true about you. I mean, number one, you've got to be, got to be in for a lot of pain and uncertainty because it is, as you said, as you point out, a lot of work. But there's, there seems to be another element to this. You have to be a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a contrarian or maybe you've got to have a bit of ego. At some level, it's just the, the, the whole idea is built on the premise that you, the founders, know something that everybody doesn't. I mean, that's pretty audacious and pretty absurd that it ever works out. And uh, that was certainly true for us. So no, we never, we never thought about just trying to take it and pedal it to the to a big company. I don't know that they would have been interested. I mean, it's so different. I mean, this idea is is is, is very strange. I like to think about the people in the early '80s at Regeneron and Genzyme and Genentech, 
and these, you know, these giants of the biotech industry back then, they were all full of long haired hippies, <laughs> right down in South San Francisco, working in old warehouses. And, and how strange it must have seemed to the big pharma of the day, these small molecule colossuses, their billions of dollars in walnut paneled offices, and how, how odd it must have looked, you know, when they walked in the door explaining how they're going to grow things in hamster ovary cells, right, which is how all antibody drugs are made today. I, I think that that must have been very odd. We take it as a given today, but I, I think that it's probably as strange to the biopharma executives of these big companies today when we come in the doors and explain our equally bizarre sounding, maybe not quite as bizarre as hamster ovaries. How did you decide you wanted to lead a biopharma company? Well, like as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's no small amount of ego that comes into thinking that you can pull off a biotech startup. So maybe that's part of it. I, I thought, I look around and I, you know, I don't know other people who can do it better. In particular, the, 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 the marriage of uh, insights that Jim and I bring to the table, I, I think has been healthy for us. Uh, Jim is a, you know, he is a scientist scientist. He was the, the head of the basic sciences division at Fred Hutch Cancer Center. He's been deep in the biology of cell cycle molecular biology for, for a couple of decades. He was really a leader in that field and it's in its grand flowering. Whereas I would not ever be confused or taken as a scientist. <laughs> I trained as a lawyer, which is about as far as being a scientist as you can get, I think, in your training. But I came up through the other aspects that are important of building a biotechnology company, which is dealing with all of the challenges you deal with. I mean, all companies run on, com on, on uh, money and people. Uh, and so that means you have financial issues and you have uh, HR issues. And all of these are governed by laws. Uh, and all of these are, there, there are many well-worn paths to ruin by screwing up these other aspects of what we do. And so if you think about it from, from that perspective, this is the sort of division of labor we have inside the company. Of course, now there are tons of other aspects of what we do, GMP manufacturing, process development, regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, et cetera. Uh, and all of these are, are equally important. But at the beginnings, these were the kind of the foundation stones. And so it really just never came up, the idea of hiring a, a so-called professional, because Jim and I figured we could, we could do as well as they could. So was it at all a novel idea, an odd idea to bring this to life in Seattle? Yes and no. To some extent, Seattle is ground zero for some of the stuff we do. So in particularly synthetic biology, the way we make and deliver drugs lends itself very well to these breakthroughs in protein engineering and synthetic biology and in silico design that are coming out of places like Barry Stoddard's lab at Fred Hutch at the Baker lab over at the University of Washington. And now there's actually this whole ecosystem of synthetic biology companies here in Seattle. So this is, that's been very natural. However, it's, Seattle is, a, I think, still a, uh, an also-ran in terms of biotechnology clusters. There's a lot going on here. I'm not only to underrate it with Seattle Genetics and Juno and uh, many other great, great companies and um, branches of, of large companies, but it's definitely not the uh, it doesn't have the critical mass of Silicon Valley or Boston, Kendall Square. But, you know, there's, there's good and bad with that. I think the downside to being in a cluster like that is that, you know, there's a lot, there can be a lot of groupthink. I mean, we're doing something very different. And even in Seattle, 
here, they, the biotech cluster is in South Lake Union. We're on the North shore of Lake Union. I think that's been helpful uh, on the margin. We're close enough where we get most of the advantages in terms of recruiting and being in the mix of ideas, but we're far enough away that uh, we don't feel pressure to, to fit in into the, the general flow of the uh, intellectual climate. What were you hoping to achieve that could be done at Lumen Bioscience and not at another company? Look, at this point, we're five years in. We've had a lot of success. So the temptation is to look back with the benefit of hindsight and tell a story that makes us look like prophets, right? I think there's a little bit of that. Honestly, I was saying earlier, we had this idea that it could be tremendously powerful to make orally delivered biologic drugs. And, and that, that, that's not reinventing history. We, we know that for sure. Uh, was part of Jim's pitch getting me in and then, of course, inducing other people to join us on this crazy adventure. But it would be an exaggeration to say that we knew how it would unfold. Really, the breakthrough came when the Gates Foundation pitched us on an idea, this idea of making not just any old orally delivered biologic, which is a huge category, but actually making orally delivered camelid single domain antibody derived therapeutics, in particular against GI infectious diseases. And the, the nice thing about being approached by the Gates Foundation with an idea like that, particularly if it's a good idea, which that was a humdinger, is that they have a very big checkbook. And if it's an important thing, which to them, it is very important to solve this problem and to us as well, but uh, especially nice for them because they come with the checkbook. And that really allowed us to, to really start interrogating the possibilities of this great idea. It was a great marriage, their idea with the underlying technology that we had. And it was this moment that crystallized what could be possible. And it's really from that point, which was actually after we started the company, that we really started to bring things into focus. So out went the broad you know, focus on all kinds of, all kinds of different biologics that we could do. And, and then we started a very focused manner on enteric infections, uh, and particularly the ones the Gates Foundation is interested in, would still kill all these infants and newborns in the developing world, these terrible diarrheal diseases. They're, they're forgotten in the U.S. It used to be a problem here, too. And from there, stepwise, we have been expanding that now into C. difficile infection and then into COVID-19. And, and now with our partnerships with Novo Nordisk in the cardiometabolic disease and our uh, also a collaboration with Kiorn Pharmaceuticals in Japan and two other now host-centered diseases. You can see it's a sort of been a natural progression, but it's, um, it's all, again, within this big picture idea that Jim had at the outset that surely, really just a sneaking suspicion that surely it would be revolutionary if we could do this and somebody ought to try. It might as well be us. But figuring out the details of where of all of the many, many things that you could do is the most important place to start. That but that has taken a lot of teamwork and a lot of ideas that have come in from, from outside. And then I'd say from our parts, the, the job from there has been, well, first of all, recognizing a good thing when we see it. And it's like a whole lot of hard work and talents on a million details to turn that, those ideas into reality and clinical results that we have today. In the early stages, did you and Jim get that question? Well, if this is such a great idea, how come no one else has done this? This question comes up, uh, I think, all, pretty much every single call. There's a little bit of a conundrum. I was listening. So my favorite podcast host, well, second favorite now, John, after you, is uh, this guy, Tyler Cowen. He's an economist and he interviews people and he interviewed this author. And this, this guy was explaining how he put so much work into writing clearly. 
And he says it's a little bit of a trap because if you do your job very well and you write things very, very clearly, then what happens is that at the end of the day, the reader finishes your article or book or whatever, and they say, well, it couldn't be any other way. It's so obvious that what this person is saying is true. It's so convincing and clear that the thought and the prose is so lucid. And he says the problem is that if, you, if, you, if it's so good, it's so clear, it's so simple, so approachable, so understandable, then it has the effect of maybe feeling a bit trivial. And I think we run into that. People hear what we do and we explain it to them and it really is just that simple. And they think, well, if this is such a great idea, why hasn't everybody done it before? Fortunately for us, there is an institutional answer to this, which is that we have a very nice broad set of patents now issued by the US Patent Office. And as you probably know, when the Patent Office decide, is deciding whether or not to give you a patent on a thing, they have to assess whether it is you know, a meaningful advance and whether it's truly innovative. And in our case, people have been trying for a long, long time to engineer spirulina, this microbe we use to make these orally delivered antibodies. And you can look, in fact, in the literature uh, it's hard to find a paper on a negative result, as you probably know, that that's not a sort of thing that is publishable. Here's 10 things we tried and none of them worked. But nevertheless, in passing, if you know how to look for it, you'll see people saying, well, we tried to engineer spirulina. Of course, everybody knows it's impossible. And so it failed. And so we went on and we did something. And then it's about what the paper was really about. So this is a really uh, important for us because it's a clue that actually it, it is quite meaningful what we've done. So people have known that in short, this idea of orally delivering antibody drugs, even about uh, antibody drugs directed at the enteric diseases the Gates Foundation introduced us to. People have known about that for a long time. People have been doing that, in fact, for 30 years and clinical trials succeeded over and over and over again. It's a, it's a, it falls into, in my, in my mind, the dumb trick category of drug development. And what was lacking is a scalable biomanufacturing approach that would allow you to do this at an affordable cost. So you could get enough antibody to do a relatively small phase two clinical trial, but you, they could never make enough of it. And of course, then there's spirulina out there growing in these huge outdoor ponds. So you could make enough of it. It's actually cheap enough. You can buy it in the grocery store. But the problem was nobody could ever engineer it. And that story, again, we've written about, but it is a, a, another story of serendipity and, and a hard work and talent. But once we figured that unsolvable problem that's what that was the final sort of the keystone in the in the arch as it were that's what makes everything else possible so now we can turn this what is it the in the dumb trick category of drug development into a thing that is actually a scalable cost effective globally scalable product that is scalable even even cheap enough at large scale we believe to serve the the goals of the gates foundation which is all about global health and serving these under underserved communities in the developing world how do you spend your time? What does the CEO of a biopharma company do all day? Uh, yeah, so I spend a lot of time, honestly, trying to figure out that, the answer to that question. <laughs> and uh, I, I think this is, I've talked with other CEOs. This is, I, I think, a common question. This is, a, you know, of all the things I could put my focus on, what, what, what's the most important things? How do I prioritize? Am I doing this right? You know, you know it's not like, like, like there's a manual for this. Of course, you know, airports are full of, manuals to purport to tell you what to do, but they're mostly written, I think, tellingly by people that haven't done it. The bulk of my time at our current stage of development, I still spend trying to understand the science and, and follow along with what's going on. 
On the weekends, I spend a tremendous amount of time reading papers you know, in the primary literature. That's That's been a real joy for me. Moving into this job is the, that, that part of the job. As our pipeline progresses, I spend more and more time in FDA guidance documents and regulations, and now more and more in clinical trial uh, design and execution, the logistics of that. So I would say that's all uh, maybe the technical parts of the job. I'm not doing any of these things, but fortunately, we have really talented people calling the shots in all of these areas. But nevertheless, I'm responsible and I have to explain it, communicate it. So that takes a huge amount of time. The, the hardest parts of the job, I would say anything related to HR, tremendously difficult. It's, it's just, there's so many trade-offs in that field. And we have a, you know, an HR team. And of course, we talk a lot about this. And this is everything from who, who do we hire? How do we uh, structure the organization? Who reports to whom? And you have to have a, an org chart and boxes have to report to other boxes. And it's just a terrible thing that you have to you know, think all of this through. It's it's very complicated. Finally, you know, I say the least important, but probably the thing that people associate with CEOs the most, there's external communication. So uh, talking with folks like you, John, talking with investors, talking, uh, working with the board of directors here, talking with, uh, we have a lot of funding from grant funding organizations like the Department of Defense and BARDA and the Gates Foundation. So talking with those folks and really communicating what we're doing, what we're excited about, where we're encountering setbacks. I would say that's all the easiest part. The other things are much, much more difficult and much more time consuming. I think that may be the opposite of what people think of the job as being. Can you remember when you were eight or nine or 10, that image that you probably had, we all had probably based on what we thought our parents wanted us to be when we grew up, that picture maybe from a book, from a TV show, this is what I'll be when I grow up. Does that have anything, do you remember it? And does that have anything to do with what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I don't know how the idea formed, but I was damn sure I was going to be a, a commercial airline pilot. <laughs> yeah, and I loved airplanes. Uh, I read all of the science fiction, and, you know, there were no rocket ships, so, uh, so you know, I was going to fly airplanes, but we were dirt poor. Uh, but I found out that if you're, if you want to become a pilot, you know, the key thing is to become a commercial pilot, you've got to have a ton of hours. And getting flight hours is very expensive if you're going to do it by paying, you know, renting airplane time. But if you're a dirt poor like we were, then you could, you could go into the Air Force, and then, then you get all the hours on Uncle Sam's nickel, and you could come and so yeah, I had it all mapped out. I was gonna, I was gonna go get uh, an aeronautical engineering degree. I ordered all of these brochures from Embry Riddle and M- MIT, and that was my thing. I was gonna become an engineer. But then my eyes went to shit. You can't join the Air Force <laughs> if you have glasses. I think you can though. I think you can get LASIK, and they'll, they'll let you in if you have certain versions of the LASIK surgery. But uh, that was off the table for me. So I went to college. I still got a uh, went into the sciences. I uh, got a political science degree. This, of course, is one of the hardest of the hard sciences. And I went to law school and, and found my way here. But I think that, that that idea as a kid, what's kept with me is this, this concept of this, um, the engineering mindset. I think I've carried with me. Uh, I, I think of that a lot now. And we uh, are, are in a mode of thinking about drug development as uh, an engineering, more of an engineering task, which I know is a you know, sort of a current thought among the synthetic biology folks. And, and, and so I think that does probably still influence how we do things today, but it's very different from flying airplanes. I did finally get my pilot's license though, uh, several years ago. When you finally climbed in the cockpit and got to fly around, was it every bit as satisfying and thrilling as you pictured it would be? It's, it was very impressive for me. Yeah, 
Um, very impressive. Very, very surprising in cer cer certain ways. Like I was very surprised, for example, at how what a physical activity it was, or at least was for me. I mean, it's very nerve wracking and very stressful, particularly when you're when you're learning. And of course, that's the worst thing you can do. It's like being around horses. You know, you stress them out, and and it'll give you a heavy hand on the on the yoke flying an airplane if you're uh, a ball of stress, as most people are when they're learning how. But it's also very intellectual and a very, I would say, I'll use a. Uh, were regulated activity in the sense, not like in sort of government regulation, which of course it is very regulated and got in that sense as well. But in terms of everything you do has a highly refined method to it. And, and that's all to ensure this you know, safety and reliability of what you're doing. And it's really, I've never encountered anything like it. Maybe, maybe drug manufacturing is, is at that same level. It's really a marvel of 21st, the 21st engineering approach to problem solving the fact uh, that our aviation system works how it does. I picture just now as you were telling that story, it's sort of a, in either case, it's a bit of a high wire act, I suppose, to pilot a plane or to pilot a, a biopharma company. It's not for the faint of heart, as they say. It's a very direct analogy, actually, John, in more, more ways than you know. So if you, if you, you may, I don't know if you know anything about airplanes, but it's all about balancing forces, right? You've got thrust and drag and lift and weight. And you, the goal to keep the air, is to keep the airplane in the sky. And if you don't keep all of those things in equilibrium, then bad things happen. It's the same thing in uh, a lot of activities. And uh, I say early stage biotechnology is the same thing in, in the sense that you've got a lot of perturbations that are always happening. And in an airplane, you're, you're getting buffeted by gusts of wind. You're getting, you know, things are happening with the weather. They're causing you to change the altitude because of air traffic. All kinds of things are always happening. And you, you've got to manage this equilibrium in the context of all of those perturbations that want to throw you off course or throw you out of equilibrium into a bad situation. And sometimes it does, and then you've got to reestablish equilibrium. Same thing happens in a company. There are good things and bad things that happen in an organization, and they come from all angles, and most of them you don't see coming. And you do the best you can to anticipate them and to build an environment that is robust to those perturbations so that when it happens, then you can reestablish equilibrium. Who is Lumen Biosciences? We are a clinical stage biotechnology company that makes orally delivered biologic drugs. We have products in the clinic, and this is a huge inflection point, uh, as anyone can tell you, in biotechnology. It's one thing to draw things on a whiteboard and do things uh, experimentally in mice and cell plates, but uh, moving into the clinic is a fraught exercise. It's when you first are forced to engage with the FDA and other regulators. You have to, uh, you're starting to do things with actual humans. So the ethical stakes are much higher. So, uh, so we're a clinical stage biotechnology company here. It's important also that we are product focused. So here there's lots of biotechnology companies do different things. There are CROs, CDMOs. These are contract research organizations and contract development manufacturing organizations. These either carry out research for product developers or they manufacture product for product developers. We're none of those things. We are a product-focused company. And importantly here, we are a vertically integrated biotechnology company. In fact, one of the very few since the early days of the biotechnology industry. If you think about it, in the 1980s, before there were the CDMO industry and the CRO industry and all of the different flavors of those two, there were just some, again, hippies in South San Francisco with long hair, working with Chinese hamster ovary cells, of all things, and using old surplus brewing equipment to try to make drugs in them. It was so goofy. There was no industry that they could just send off their antibody DNA to 
uh, and have them manufacture it for them. So they had to build all of the stuff themselves because they're the first ones. We're the first ones in exactly the same way with this biomanufacturing host, Spirulina. Uh, and so consequently, we have the same mandate as they did back then in the early 80s, which is we have our own manufacturing plant, our own regulatory team, uh, our own clinical team, our own early stage development pipeline, because actually you do some of the early stage uh, protein engineering, very bespoke to the Spirulina context. So that's, um, that's, that's the first part of what I said. We are a clinical stage biotechnology company uh, developing products. Now for oral, orally delivered biologics. Now the important thing here is this is a really ac acute difference between us and every other antibody drug developer in the world today. Uh, well, actually, except one. And that is that we are making products not for injection, which are 100% of the approved antibody drugs on the market today that are monoclonal antibodies are for injection. Rather, we make them for oral delivery, meaning you can just eat them in a capsule or a pill. And this is a critical distinction. And the reason we're doing this is, and this is really, I say, you could think of um, lumen bioscience as being an elaborate attempt to test this hypothesis scientifically, is that we believe that orally delivering these biologics, putting them directly into the GI, the middle of the GI tract or onto the GI, uh, the surface of the GI, uh, inner surface of the GI tract is a way to address some of these uh, unmet medical needs that have actually resisted solution using traditional drug development tools. Uh, and so the easiest starting points now, it's easy to understand why we started with things like traveler's diarrhea, the same actually uh, causative pathogens cause traveler's diarrhea, cause these enteric diarrheal diseases among infants and newborns in the developing world. That's the Gates Foundation origin company uh, uh, pro program. This is why we're directed at C. difficile infection, which is another bacterial infection of the GI tract. Other targets here are, include COVID-19, which has uh, a very important GI manifestations that are left unmet by traditional approaches, as well as a range of other programs. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's just starting. Where we've branched out a little bit and gone a little actually beyond Jim's early conception is that uh, we now have funding from the Gates Foundation and BARDA to develop the same, starting with COVID-19, the same anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibody cocktail that we made for GI delivery to reformulate it for intranasal delivery. And that's because the intranasal or the upper respiratory tract is where almost everybody first gets infected with SARS-CoV-2. The science is, is pretty pretty clear on that. So far, there's still more to learn, of course. And so we believe, uh, and with their funding, we're, we're, we're now investigating whether the same uh, efficiencies that we get from delivering antibodies directly to the GI tract to treat GI infections will also apply to the upper respiratory tract, the nasal passages. What's good about being able to take a pill rather than getting an intravenous injection? Maybe a good example uh, to, to start with is uh, C. difficile infection. Okay, so C. difficile infection, uh, traditionally called a hospital-acquired infection, a nosocomial infection. Actually, a majority of cases are community-acquired now, but put that aside. So typically what happens with C. difficile infection is you go in, you're typically an elderly person or someone else who's got a vulnerable immune system. They get antibiotics for some completely unrelated reason. Clindamycin is the worst offender. And what happens is the clindamycin clears up the infection at issue, maybe after surgery or something, but it also accidentally kills the microbiome in your GI tract. And it turns out the microbiome is doing a lot of things down there. A, lot, a tremendous amount has been learned about the microbiome and its role in human health in the last few years. One of the things that it does is it prevents C. difficile 
this bacterial that transmits by spores from getting in and colonizing your GI tract. You see, C. difficile spores are all around us all the time. In fact, the asymptomatic carriage rate of C. difficile is something like 5 to 10%. So in a room of, you know, 100 people, 5 to 10 of them have got some C. difficile. And normally it doesn't matter because your microbiome sort of freezes them out. And but with clindamycin dampening your natural microbiota diversity, the C. difficile can get in there, it secretes a toxin, and therefore it sets off all of the awful things that happen, including uh, a very high rate of uh, mortality among those infected, particularly the vulnerable. Okay, so one thing is, that's known about C. difficile is that if you make an antibody that neutralizes that toxin, it's a pretty good way to make an impact on the disease. And so there's a, an antibody drug on the market today, it's called bezlotoximab. And this is injected at very high abundance into the bloodstream. And uh, just enough of it gets to the site of disease to make an impact. It decreases your odds of a future case of C. difficile infection by about 25%, which is good for those patients. But there's a couple of problems with this. Number one, it's very expensive. Making antibody in the traditional fashion with sterile fermentation and then doing all of this downstream processing to get it the very minute quantities that are safe enough to inject, which is injecting foreign substances into your bloodstream is a very, very dangerous thing, is colossally expensive. It costs 100 to $200 a gram to manufacture these substances. They're most valuable substances on earth, in fact. Second, it's inconvenient. Needle fear is a real thing. Up to you know, 15 to maybe 25% of the population is afraid of needles. And this is one thing to say, oh, what are, you, what are you afraid of? I mean, you're dying of a bacterial infection, but it's a real barrier. It does, it's no good to, to minimize it. So trypanophobia is an important thing. Thirdly, as we learned in the COVID-19 pandemic with availability issues for the uh, monoclonal antibodies, which are universally today IV infused, just the very fact that you've got a book uh, infusion clinic slot and you've got all the logistics of getting the refrigerated vial moved around and over to the place where it goes with the patient. And then, of course, then there's another service charge for the facility and the administration of professional staff that are there. So all of that has to do with distribution. Okay, so now what do we do differently? First of all, orally delivering the antibody means that we get more of the antibody to where it needs to be in the GI tract. So we, we, our product against C. difficile element 201 has, is, uh, includes antibodies against the toxin, just like bezeltoximab. That's great because we get more of it to where the site of disease is. The site of disease is not in the bloodstream. It's not like a blood-borne infection. It's all in the GI tract. And, and only one in one thousandths or less of the IV-infused antibody actually get up through the, all of the, out of the vasculature through the tissues to where it needs to be. So what we do is we come from the top down, and uh, the, the antibody just fills up the GI tract. This is why the cost is so important. We just fill the whole GI tract with this antitoxin antibody. So that's one advantage. The higher concentration usually gets you better potency. The second advantage safety. If you IV infuse an antibody, it's going to go everywhere in your body by definition, right? It's in your bloodstream. And that means that the risk for off-target toxicities are greater. In addition, with protein therapeutics in particular, there are risks associated not just with off-target effects, but the, the protein itself can have immunological effects. It can attract anti-drug antibodies. It'll neutralize it. It can also cause uh, immunological responses to the protein itself that can be bad. I mean, it's lower risk of that now, but in the 80s, it was a real problem. And so oral delivery, you see, of a protein is much, much safer. And that's because your GI tract is, of course, filled with all kinds of foreign proteins. You know, there's, you know, in addition to your normal microbiota, which is all kinds of crazy proteins that are non-human by definition, uh, you're also eating all kinds of food. Every time you eat a banana, 
banana is comprised of proteins and all of them are non-human proteins or banana proteins. And so this makes it much safer at the outset to orally deliver proteins uh, through the GI tract. Thirdly, the delivery modality is, is very simple. So distribution-wise, the, the proteins uh, are, are in these sort of dried capsules. They're very shelf-stable out a year, even, even above room temperature. We've tested it up to 42 degrees Celsius, which is great for distribution. This means that rather than bringing someone in to an IV infusion clinic, we can just literally FedEx it to their door. I mean, say Amazon pill pack can mail this right to the person overnight. It's no problem. Put it on Prime, subscribe and save, whatever you need to do. And in addition, uh, of course, you don't need to pay the skilled healthcare workers to then put the needles in and have all this infrastructure, just capsule, just open and you know, pop a pill. And so that helps a lot with distribution. And then finally, our claim to fame, what really got us going in this field is cost. Um, and here, I want to be careful because saying that you're making things low cost is, is a bit of a dirty word in our industry. What people, you know, for, what investors want to see is a, you know, $400,000 for, you know, a cancer antibody drug. And that's, that's really what they want to see. So cost is a little bit of a dirty word, but it's really important. If you're going to go after drugs this way, if you're going to manufacture them for $200 a gram, there's just no way you're going to be able to, first of all, affordably deliver that to everybody. Because you have to, with an orally delivered protein, you have to deliver it every day for some period of time when you want the protection to last. So the cost is critical. It's a, sort of the, the key that gets you in the door. But it's importantly, the lesson we've learned in the pandemic from, I'd say from Pfizer, is that if you can make a product that is cost effective to manufacture and massively scalable, and this is what our technology allows us to do, is actually you can make an enormously profitable investment in new products. In this case, I'm talking about Paxlovid and their vaccine uh, that they developed with BioNTech. And, and you see, you make, you do well by, how's the phrase go? You do well by doing good. I mean, they, they're, they're projecting $50 billion of revenue this year off of uh, one product, which sells for $20 a piece. Uh, and Paxlovid, I think the list price is $300 which are just minuscule prices. But you see, making it up in volume is something that our industry, in my view, has sort of forgotten how to do. And we're, in a sense, going back to the basics. So at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is build on what we've learned from the uh, hard work of the folks that developed bezotoximab. It's a validated target. We know it works, and we know that we can get at higher concentration of site of delivery. And so uh, the goal is to make a product that realizes the full potential of what they paved the way for a massively scalable, massively available, affordable, and still profitable for our investors as well, product that is both better and safer. This is the sort of magic trick that technology can do for you. And it is the sort of uh, ground change that we saw in, uh, in the treatment of infections with the advent of antibiotics. And C. difficile, because of his peculiarities, has been sort of left behind. And our hope is to do as good a job as those pioneers did 50 years ago. How does the Lumen Bioscience Pipeline express your vision for the company? It, if you can look at it one way, and that does involve a little bit of uh, looking backwards and stitching things together. Because like I say, in the reality, there was a lot more serendipity to it. But I'll say it anyway. You can look at it as a thoughtful and natural, clever design. <laughs> you see, we started with a set of disease targets that were 
that have a great deal of clinical evidence to support the mechanism of action, all validated targets. Like I said, uh, traveler's diarrhea and C. difficile, we know exactly the target to go after. And in most cases, it's been demonstrated in both of those cases, actually clinically, that orally delivered an antibody or cocktail of antibodies against the target can actually make a huge difference. And so this is the lowest for hanging fruit, the easiest targets. And as you probably know, the success rate in the clinic for new products in the infectious disease space is vastly higher than what most of our industry is focused on today, which are, you know, if you look at the account, the programs is primarily oncology and autoimmune bit of CNS. I mean, these are very, very difficult mechanistic problems. And by contrast, the success rates in infectious diseases can be 10 times higher. And so for a small company, building our clinical team, taking our first stab at this, you see, it's just better to start with the easier targets. So that's where we started. Now, less is known about COVID-19, obviously, because it's new, and less still is known about uh, intranasally delivering antibodies topically. And so there we're taking a little more risk, being a little bit more adventurous. And the logical progression from there takes us into some of these other longstanding problems in human health. Uh, again, more diseases that have been sort of left behind or where we've only got partial solutions for GI diseases in particular. Here, I would call attention to our collaboration with Novo Nordisk. That's directed at cardiometabolic disease. Our own internal program in inflammatory bowel disease, that's Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And finally, our collaboration with Kiorn Pharmaceuticals, which uh, we have not publicly disclosed the target, but it's another uh, GI-centered uh, disease. Now, the interesting thing about these is it seems obvious, inflammatory bowel disease. You say, well, obviously, that's a bowel disease. It's got the word bowel in it. But interestingly, actually, if you talk with immunologists, most of them will tell you, well, no, no, no. You see, that's a systemic immune dysfunction, and it won't work because inflammatory bowel disease is a systemic immune misfunction, dysfunction. Now, the rest of us look at this and say, well, wait a second, has the word bowel in it. <laughs> so, uh, so we have a heterodox view there, uh, a minority opinion uh, that we can make a difference there. Even more so, uh, you would say more counterintuitively, cardiometabolic disease, you wouldn't say obesity is a gastrointestinal disorder. Well, but on the other hand, it's just like IBD. It's undeniably got something to do with the GI tract. So we are reliant in these areas uh, on the expertise of our collaborators a lot more than in infectious disease, again, just because they are more difficult, more complicated to go after. And so this is the, the current horizon that is consuming more and more of our, of our focus and energies on the preclinical side. And clinically, we've got three programs uh, working through efficacy now in, um, in the infectious disease space, and we're excited to see the results later this year. Brian, thanks for speaking with me today. Well, thank you for having me on, John. I really enjoyed it. Of the nearly 50 Biopharma founders and CEOs who have been my guest on BioBoss, more than a handful have, like Brian Finro, described a lifelong fascination with flying aircraft. It's hard to miss the idea that neither leadership of a biopharma nor piloting a plane is for the faint of heart. But Brian added another layer to this analogy, the idea of managing equilibrium. As Brian said, when flying a plane or leading a company, you're continually dealing with perturbations that want to throw you off course and into a bad situation. Yes, you do your best to anticipate these challenges and build a robust environment to protect the plane or the organization, but you still need the clarity of mind to take the right course of action 
and return the airship runner prize to a state of equilibrium, at least until the next unexpected challenge appears out of nowhere. Brian goes on to share his experience with how managing these challenges requires a steady hand, describing how stress, especially when you're a new pilot who is learning the craft, can result in a heavy hand on the yoke, which works against the pilot's ability to fluidly execute decisions and return the plane to a steady state. In my experience, a light hand on the yoke is a prized quality of successful biopharma leaders for its steadying influence when the company is buffeted by headwinds, and also to provide breathing room for colleagues who need to make their decisions without undue intervention by the CEO. Brian made another point about leadership, which resonated for me in part because of how plainly he chose his words. As Brian said, at some level, the whole idea is built on the premise that you, the founders, know something everybody else doesn't. He's right, of course, to point out that's a pretty audacious idea, but from what I've observed, that sort of unshakable faith in one's insight is at the heart of the matter. The confidence to have faith in your often novel, often uncharted vision is a different leadership skill than we see in some other fields and helps make biopharma a place that attracts more than its share of steely, resolute leaders. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss. <laughs>